0: All right, if you have your Bible, turn me to John uh, chapter 1. We're going to be covering verses 6 through 18 this morning. This is our second week in the book of John in a series that I've called Signs, uh, which is a reference to the sign, the seven signs and miracles that Jesus will perform in the first 11 chapters of the book of John. And so we have a number of those, beginning in John 2, Jesus turning water into wine, and so on. And so uh, this is, in fact, a uh, There there are some traditions which actually refer to the first 11 chapters of John as the book of signs because of those miracles. Um, But the greatest miracle of all, perhaps, is in the first chapter, and it's not considered one of the seven signs. It is, in fact, God becoming human. The Word becoming flesh. No no exaggeration to say that the word became flesh is one of the most important phrases in all the scriptures, because it speaks to the heart of God. It speaks to uh, the commitment of God. It answers the question, how far will God go to rescue a broken humanity? It also answers the question, how does God show his grace to humanity. So this morning, uh, as we work our way through this very dense section, we're going to see four aspects of God's grace poured out on us through Jesus Christ. So we'll come back to a, a couple of sections or verses here, but let me read the entire uh, section as we get in. Uh, this is John chapter 1, verses 6 through 18. The word of the Lord reads this way. There was a man sent from John, or from God rather, whose name was John, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's right hand. He has made him known. Last week we focused the bulk of our time on this phrase, in the beginning was the word in the beginning was the Lagos. And we saw that the Lagos, Jesus Christ, was with God at the beginning. He also was God. And the Lagos, Jesus, is actually God's perfect self-expression. Well, in verse 18 that I read, we see that spelled out even more clearly. No one has ever seen God. And then John says, the only God who is at the Father's side he has made him known. The phrase the only God is not a reference to the Father. This is a reference to Christ, the Word. And here we see that that Christ is called the only God. In no other place in Scripture is the deity of Jesus Christ so clearly spelled out as it is here. Jesus, the Word, is the only God. That is, is, he is co-equal with God the Father, and he shows us what God is like. And if you ever... I don't know if this happens in North Alabama, but in my neighborhood in Southern California, we would get Jehovah's Witnesses that would come on a regular basis and knock on our door. And there was always, they always wanted to get hung up on this idea of, well, they would say, well, the Bible doesn't really say that Jesus was God. And if that ever happens to you, you can go to John 1, and there are multiple instances where Christ is exalted as God. He is God. He's co-equal with the Father. He shows us what God is like. And one of the things that Jesus shows us about God is the various manifestations of God's grace. In him, we have all received grace upon grace, or literally one grace after another grace. And we're going to look at those four expressions this morning. You know, grace is one of those concepts that we hear about all the time in church, and uh, we even have clever acronyms for it. God's riches at Christ's expense, which is one that I've, I've heard even recently. Uh, we know grace is unmerited favor, uh, one-way love, and all those, those are fine. Those are good descriptors, definitions of grace. But in its fullest sense, grace is actually more than that. Grace is God providing what we cannot provide for ourselves, Grace is God giving us what we do not deserve nor could ever earn for ourselves. So let me give you just a very succinct definition. One sentence. Grace is God providing for us what we neither deserve nor could provide for ourselves. And it's not just salvation, although certainly it is salvation. It's more than that it's it's laughter, it's friendship, it's family. It is joy, it's knowledge, it's understanding, it's health. It is all of these things that God provides for us that we cannot provide for ourselves, nor do we deserve. Again, we're going to look at four expressions of that, but in John nine one uh, nine, we see that John says, uh, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, this is, of course, not a reference to himself. He's not speaking in the third person here. This is a reference to John the Baptist or John the Baptizer, and he says that John the Baptist wasn't the long-awaited Savior. He simply paved the way for the long-awaited one. The one who would come, John says, is the true light who gives life, who gives light to everyone. So here's the first aspect of God's grace we're going to see this morning. That is God's indiscriminate grace. When verse 9 says that the true light enlightens everyone, it doesn't mean that everyone will become a follower of Jesus Christ. We know better than that. The rest of the Scripture uh, makes it clear that most people will actually, in fact, even this immediate passage makes it clear clear that most people will ultimately reject Jesus. Narrow is the road that leads to life, and few there are that find it, Matthew tells us. So it's not, John is not saying that everyone will become a follower of Jesus. Everyone will put their faith in Jesus. The enlightening that Jesus brings here is not a reference to spiritual salvation. John is saying that in Jesus Christ, God introduces himself as he truly is to all of humanity. The Bible teaches that God is knowable only to the extent that he makes himself known. So we can't get to God by our reasoning. Job mentions this. We can't get to God by our intellect. We can't figure God out on our own. We can only know about God what he wants us to know. But praise God for his grace, he reveals to us in creation his eternal power and nature. And in the person of Jesus Christ, he reveals his love, his grace, his mercy, his power, his attributes, The true light, Jesus Christ, the truth about God, shines on all men, irrespective of background, intellect, race, family lineage, socioeconomic status. The light shines on all mankind. Invoking, John will say, either one of two responses. Either people turn to the light or they run from the light. Now, it's a disgusting example, but bear with me on this. In 2007, I went on a short-term mission trip to the Dominican Republic, and I took my oldest son, who was 10 at the time. It was the, the, the first time I'd ever taken uh, one of my kids on a mission trip, which was really just a wonderful experience. Um, and, you know, we learned a lot. It was amazing. But as soon as we got to where we were staying, which was a little bungalow in the south part of Harabacoa, we were given earplugs and told, put these in your ears at night when you sleep. Now, why do you suspect we were given earplugs? You would think it was because of the noise, right? That would be the natural conclusion. Well, that was not why we were given the earplugs. The problem was cockroaches were so bad that they actually were known to crawl into people's ears at night. This happened to one of the guys who was with us, and he actually had to go to an emergency room to have a cockroach removed from his ear. So... Of course that didn't appeal to me, so I had not only did I have the ear earplugs in, I had a hat on, I pulled a hood over my face. It was uh, it was 90 degrees, but I was dressed like I was trying to survive a blizzard. But the last thing I wanted was a cockroach in my ear. And so, but the thing is the the cockroaches were everywhere. And I hated this, I hated to get up at night and use the restroom because as soon as you'd flip the light on, of course, they would scatter like crazy. And they were they were all over the place. Well What the gospels tell us is, is this this metaphor of the light over and over, is that when when the light shines, it exposes darkness, right? It exposes evil deeds, exposes wickedness, and it either draws people to God in humble faith or it repels them in their independence. But that knowledge of God, the objective revelation of God is available to all mankind in the person Jesus Christ. So not only does God reveal Himself to the upscale mover and shaker, but He also reveals Himself to the single mother. He also reveals Himself to the prostitute. He also reveals Himself to the homeless person. God is no respecter of persons. Not only does God make Himself visible to the highly esteemed, but He makes Himself visible to the despised the outcast. Not only does God make himself known to Americans, but he makes himself known to Europeans and Africans, Middle Easterners, Asians, and members of every other nation and tongue. Sometimes we feel like, as a nation, we've got the market cornered on Christianity, don't we? You know, we see the way that people are coming to faith in other parts of the world. It's astounding, really. God's grace knows no boundaries. See, indiscriminate grace does not mean that all receive the same, but that all receive some. God's enlightening, verse 9, enlightens everyone, but it also divides. Look at verses 11 through 13 again. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Here's the second expression of God's grace. Our second point is God's invitational grace. I'm not typically a big fan of alliteration. In fact, I normally despise it beginning each point with the same letter because it often requires that you force something into the text, but... This just flowed so naturally that I couldn't resist God's invitational grace to every single person. God extends this invitation, believe in Jesus Christ, and I will forgive you. I will make you my child. Longtime pastor and radio host James Montgomery Boy says, this verse reminds us here at the very beginning of the gospel, even before the account of the crucifixion and the resurrection, that the gospel of salvation by grace apart from the law is today offered freely to all. And it points to the glorious privilege of those who receive it. God has extended a bona fide offer of salvation to all people. It doesn't matter what your background is, your theological or faith background. It could be Reformed, Arminian, Presbyterian, Baptist, Methodist, Wesleyan, whatever it is, every Christian must admit this must acknowledge this. God extends a bona fide offer of salvation to all who would repent. And certainly this fuels us in our mission, doesn't it? To every individual on the face of the earth, God wants them to hear the good news of the invitation of forgiveness in Jesus Christ. But even as we announce it, we must recognize that it won't be our persuasion that saves anyone Verse 13 says, of those who received them, who were not born of the blood, of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Not of blood means being born into a Christian family doesn't make you a Christian. I've heard this so many times over the years when people say, I've asked them either in a casual setting or maybe they're preparing for baptism or preparing for membership just about their, their statement of faith. They say, well, I grew up in a Christian family. But that doesn't make anybody a Christian. In fact, this notion would have really uh, infuriated the original audience here because in first century Jewish thought, they held to this notion that because of their great ancestry, right, because of their great lineage, God would adopt them based on that, based on blood. But Jesus says, John says, it's not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. Now, this is a maybe the most hotly debated one. What does John mean here? A lot of people have wrestled with this. I think, given the way the term the flesh, this Greek word sarks is used throughout the New Testament, as our appetites or passions, I believe that what John is talking about here is emotions. A person is not born again simply by emotions. You know, some people consider themselves Christians because maybe they, they come to church and they, they they get emotional and and they they they're really overwhelmed by a particular worship song or whatever it is but but that doesn't make you a christian not a person doesn't become a believer by getting emotional god's salvation is not about an emotion as much as it is about a position those who are made alive in christ through faith now there's nothing wrong with getting emotional i get emotional sometimes we can get emotional but it's not getting emotional that makes us a christian nor the, of the will of man. In other words, no one else can make you a child of God, and we can't will anyone else to become a child of God, despite how much we might like to do that. Right? We want our children to walk with Christ. We want them to believe, to put their faith in Jesus. We can't will it for them. Now we can pray for them and plead for them, believing that God works through our prayers. But no one else, no one can make another person a believer salvation is from the lord but of god the new birth is nothing short of a miracle from god it has nothing to do with human initiative nothing to do with human merit or deserving only god can save by his grace our responsibility then is to respond personally and urgently and to proclaim God's invitational grace indiscriminately to all. Again, regardless of background, gender, race, history, ethnicity, even sinful past. I had to deal with one of the most difficult situations I've ever dealt with in ministry one year in. I received a voicemail from a man who said he desperately wanted to meet with me, didn't go to our church, I didn't recognize the name, never heard of him. Didn't leave any details as to why he wanted to meet. And I wasn't able to get, respond to his voicemail within 24 hours, so he called me again. And then one early afternoon, I was in my office, and one of the administrative assistants buzzed me and said, hey, there's a guy here who wants to see you. His name is such and such. Do you recognize the name? I said, no, I, I, don't, I don't recognize the name. And they said, well, he's here. I said, okay, well, let me uh, give me a moment here and I'll and I'll speak with him. So he came back to my office and hardly, hardly looked at me in the eye at all. But he informed me that he had just been released from prison, multiple accounts of child molestation. He had secretly taken children in people's own homes, and their homes, into restrooms, into bedrooms, and molested them. But he said he was he appeared to be broken. He said, I need to be forgiven. I need to be forgiven. I need to be made right with God. I know what I've done. I know it's wrong. I know it's horrible. I know it's heinous, but I want to be forgiven. And I had to ask myself that moment, did I believe that God's grace was big enough to forgive a repeat child molester? a man who himself by his own admission came up came from a messed up family a man who was molested as a child i had to ask myself the question 10 months into pastoral ministry did i really believe that god could save a person like him and i had to conclude that god could and does that god's grace does not discriminate based on a person's history or background or sinfulness John says, to all who received him, to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Maybe you're saying, but I don't know me. How how do I know that I can trust Jesus? He doesn't know me. Look at the first part of verse 14, that first section. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh. The concept of God becoming flesh, human, has always been a source of controversy. This has been a stumbling block to people from from the very beginning, even in the first century. It's been a reality that has troubled, confounded, and even separated people. And in fact, this same John would write in some of his other letters, he writes in a way that reveals something, reveals that this was a problem, accepting the humanity of Christ. It was a problem from the very beginning. You can sense it in his letters. In fact, 1 John 4, 2, he writes, Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come, what? In the flesh is from God. 2 John 1, For many deceivers have gone into the world who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ, what? In the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. What do the deceivers deny that Jesus Christ, the Word, the God-man, came in the flesh. How far will God go to save a lost world? God has come all the way down to us and become human, taking on flesh, entering a world of violence, willingly surrendering his own life so that the people who were his enemies could be redeemed. From the earliest days of the church, many have fought against this, And the followers of Jesus have always pushed back, of course, against any attempt to reject the humanity of Jesus. In fact, in the 4th century, the church formalized the Nicene Creed and began to use it in worship. In the 300s, people began to say and confess and recite these truths together, century after century, generation after generation, through the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. Through the darkness of medieval times, through the Renaissance period, through the Protestant Reformation, the time of the Puritans, through the Industrial Revolution of the late 1700s, through modernity and post-modernity, Christians have gathered to confess, gathered to recognize and acknowledge, among others, this truth. God became flesh and dwelt among us. Here's the third aspect of God's grace. It is God's incarnational grace. The logos of God, the eternal word, became flesh. He became one of us. Now, why is that so important? Well, as we talked about on Christmas Eve, if you were here, it means that we have in Christ a Savior who can empathize with us. Not simply a Savior who says, you know what? Well, it looks really bad down there. I'm glad I'm not there. No, it's a Savior who has come all the way to us, and actually knows what it's like to suffer, who knows what it's like to get tired, who knows what it's like to get hungry, who knows what it's like to be betrayed, who knows what it's like to experience physical pain and exhaustion, who knows what it's like to be tempted in every way, yet was without sin. So we have in this Savior, not someone who sympathizes with us from arm's length, but who says, my son, my daughter, I know. I know I've been there. I was there. I know what it's like to suffer. Whatever you're going through, whether it's feelings about, of uncertainty about your future, tension in your marriage, physical or emotional exhaustion, again, a nagging illness just keeps hounding you. You're like, when am I ever going to get over this? Why do I have to cough with pain for weeks and months at end? Whatever it is, maybe it's the hurt over being betrayed. Whatever it is, Jesus knows what it's like. He's been there. He understands you and what you're dealing with. He doesn't Administer his grace to us from some ivory tower in heaven. In Christ, you have someone who understands you, who is with you, and not just with you, but able to help. He came not only to identify with us with incarnational grace, but also to die for us as our substitute. Look at verses 16 through 18 again. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's right hand has made him known. Have you ever noticed that Christians have a tendency to pit grace and truth against each other, you know, as though they're opposites? I was at a conference about a year and a half ago sitting in this gigantic ballroom. It was a beautiful uh, place, and I was listening to a very good preacher share uh, his personal testimony of how God's spirit had rescued him from a life of debauchery and rebellion and just absolute hard-heartedness, and uh, it was powerful stuff. It was powerful stuff, and and the room was uh, wrapped with attention. There was already a sense of electricity in the air, and then... He cautioned us about showing too much grace and he instructed us to learn to dwell in the tension between grace and truth. We must, he said, temper our grace with truth. Now when he said that, the room actually erupted in applause. There were some people, sort of a scattering of people that actually gave him a standing ovation. But when he said that, he lost me. He lost me. How can we show too much grace. We can't if we understand grace correctly. You can't show too much grace. Since when does grace have to be kept in check? God didn't keep his grace in check. He unleashed it on us in the person of Jesus. John doesn't pit grace and truth against each other. He says, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Notice he does make a distinction though. Between law and grace. Not grace and truth, but between law and grace. The law came from Moses, but grace and truth came from Jesus Christ. The law here is a reference to the commands of God, the Torah. The law tells us what to do. The law represents the commands of God. Anything that says, do this, don't do this, you should, you shall, you shouldn't, that's law. The law makes demands. And not only does the law make demands, it's never satisfied with anything less than absolute and complete perfection. Paul reminds us in Galatians 3 that cursed is every man who does not abide by everything written in the book of the law to perform them. If you haven't kept every single law this morning, in thought, in word, in deed, in motive, you are condemned. You stand condemned And that's all of us. We are rendered condemned by our disobedience. Grace, however, is the great contrast to the law. The law demands, but grace gives. Under the law, God demands righteousness from people. Under grace, he gives people his righteousness through Jesus Christ. Now, notice that John tells us that the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In other words, Moses is not the law. It was given through him. And Jesus didn't simply bring the law, bring grace. Jesus was grace. Let me say it another way. Moses brought the standard. Jesus was the standard. Jesus embodied and satisfied the law so that all who are in him, who would be condemned as lawbreakers, are now considered standard keepers, law keepers by faith, regardless of what they've actually done. Here's a fourth expression of grace. It is God's liberating grace. And you don't know how badly I wanted to begin this word with the letter I, but I just couldn't come up with one. God's liberating grace. How is Jesus God's liberating grace? Well, under law, righteousness is based on obedience, performance, good works, which leaves us actually all enslaved because we fail to keep the law. But under grace, righteousness is based on Christ's obedience, his performance, his good works, which means on your very worst days and on your very best days, if you are in Christ, you are accepted. You are free from condemnation. And that's liberating because it frees us from pretending, insisting, that we have it all together, or trying to persuade others that we're not really blank, whatever they say we are. Now, under grace, we can say, you know what? Actually, I am. I am selfish. I am angry. I am lustful. I am lazy. I am rude. I am thoughtless. But I'm pleading with God I'm pleading with God to redeem me to 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 help me in those areas and yet even now I am accepted by him because of Christ. It's liberating because we don't have to preserve our reputation any longer. What could be a better rep- reputation than being a child of the king of the universe? I a friend of mine was a celebrity pastor. I guess I can call him a friend. We texted back and forth a few times and I talked to him maybe once or twice in person, but either way, he was a very well-known pastor and author who fell morally. And when it happened, he was frustrated. He was angry at God. He was angry at the people who discovered. He was busy at the work of trying to rescue his reputation. He said, I was in full self-salvation mode until a counselor and friend said to him, The purpose behind the suffering you're going through is to kick you into a new freedom from false definitions of who you are. Kicked into freedom. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? The false definitions this man had embraced were things like you're a good person, you're a person that everybody should want to be like, you have accomplished so much. You are worthy of everyone's emulation. None of that was true anymore. And actually, it never was true. He was always and only a person in constant need of God's grace. And the freedom of an, uh, was this new definition of who he was, this new identity. Here's the only thing he could cling to as people talked about him behind his back, as he lost his position in a prominent church, as no one bought his books anymore. The new definition came from God and it was this. You belong to me. You are mine and I love you. I purchased you at great cost and I will never let you go. I delight in you. You are perfectly righteous in my eyes because of Jesus Christ and his work on your behalf. See, that's liberating grace. But here's the deal with grace. Just like any other gift, It has to be received. And the cold, hard reality is that I say to you with almost two decades of pastoral ministry experience, the reality is we don't really like grace. We don't really like it. Remember I said that grace is God providing for us that what we can what well, we neither deserve nor can provide for ourselves. Well, receiving grace means accepting, actually admitting that we cannot provide for ourselves, nor do we deserve any good spiritual thing. Grace takes away the scorecards, and it renders us all even. And because of that, grace is unsettling to us. Jacques Ellul says it so beautifully. He writes this, the really unbearable thing for us is Grace. It is exactly the opposite of everything our religious sentiments are looking for. We do not want grace. It does not satisfy our religious needs. We are possessed by an obsessional desire to justify ourselves, to declare that we are righteous, to be righteous in our own eyes, and to seem to be righteous in the eyes of others. Saying that God loves us grants us no reassurance. We would prefer it if he gave us 50 things to do, so that when we had done them, we could be at peace. We do not want an ongoing relationship with God. We prefer a rule. We prefer being our own ruler. And can I say to you something I hope I won't regret? I have taken way more flack for preaching grace than I have for preaching law. I have gotten in way more trouble for telling people about God's incredible one-way love for us than I have for telling people what to do. I can stand up and say, this is a sin and that is a sin and these people are in sin over here. Those people are in sin. People say, preach it, amen. But when I say, our hearts, my heart is selfish and sinful. We're no better than those who commit the most terrible sins in our eyes. People say, who's he talking about? When I say our self-righteousness is no less appalling to God than your neighbor's drunken, sex-filled parties, we say, can that be right? Can that actually be right? Grace is the ultimate ground leveler. It says we have nothing except what we've been given. And since we've been given it, how can we boast about it? Since we've received a gift, how can we turn down our noses at other people who haven't received a gift? How can we for one moment think we're any better than anyone else? But when we receive grace, it frees us of every false definition of who we are and allows us to say, God, what you think of me is enough. And what you think of me is good because of Jesus. Receiving grace enables us to say, you broke my chains of sin and shame, and you covered me with grace. You mend my life with your holy fire. You cover me with grace. I am set free. Let's pray and sing that together.